Some people have opened their fireworks early, but we are a day away from celebrating Independence Day. And as I mentioned on Father's Day, I'm going to run an experiment on the Sundays leading up to all the major public holidays by pausing whatever sermon series we're going through and doing my best to preach about the holiday that we are publicly observing from God's Word. And today, uh, I'm going to try to answer from God's Word the following question. How have our politics become so poisonous? Now, I'm not talking about our politicians. I think that maybe they've been poisonous for a lot longer than what I'm referring to. What I'm referring to is the way that every single conversation is only one or two missteps away from veering into the political, and that as a society, we are all acutely aware of how much our capacity to discuss these things has degraded, and I don't think I would be saying anything new at all by saying that it is simply a profoundly divisive issue in our day. Now, this is a good question to ask because you and I are called to be salt and light in the world. We're called to bring God's word and godly answers to the most pressing problems of the day. In other words, whenever you see some pressing problem being asked in the culture, it's your opportunity to bring God's word to bear. Pain points we all experience are God's way of bringing the gospel to bear in individual lives. And so if the culture sort of unanimously agrees that we have this problem with a poisoned political discourse, then you and I should have some way of discussing that that points ultimately to Christ. And so what is the biblical answer to the question for all of this discord? Well, I want to give you a cool little biblical counseling hint or trick you can use, and that is whenever there is any fighting or quarreling going on at any level, whether it be cultural-wide or within your marriage, there's a verse for that. And that verse is James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, which reads, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So right there, we see a very universal declaration from God's word. It is not answering a question of what causes some fights or some quarrels, it's seeking to answer a more universal question. It's going to answer a more universal question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, this verse can be summarized essentially in the following way. Godly or ungodly disputes occur when desires have not been properly submitted to God. Ungodly disputes occur when desires have not been properly submitted to God. And James gives two potential, two common ways that our desires fail to be submitted to God. The first one is, they're simply not submitted to God in prayer. One of the chief causes, or at least one of the chief needs for the church to embrace related to the question of 
poisonous political discourse is simply, are we consistently bringing this government and this whole issue to God in prayer? Because one of the reasons why we might not have what we desire in this particular case is that we are not being consistent in our prayer for government officials and for the whole mess that we're in. And I don't think many of us would raise our hands and say, I deserve a gold star for the amount of zealous, earnest, urgent prayer I bring to the Father on behalf of those in leadership. But Paul tells us to do that, right? 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is instructive. That as Paul writes an epistle to someone he's training up to be an effective pastor in a city rife with political uh, and religious uh, complications, Ephesus, he says on the outset, after his greeting and sort of setting the terms for the letter, he says on the outset in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So maybe one of the answers for some of us is you read just enough news, you watch just enough news to fill up about 20 minutes worth of prayer. And then you turn it off, and you got your prayer list, and you go and pray. One of the possible explanations, one contributing factor to the discord, to the to the, uh, to the uh, poisonous politics is a lack of prayer. But James says, you have not because you ask not, and then when you do ask, you ask that you might spend it on your own pleasures. The other idea related to, to, to quarrels and fights is we don't submit our desires to God, not only not through prayer, but simply by prioritizing God above our desires. I think the basic message that James is communicating here is related to idolatry. It's related to the problem of seeing one of God's gifts and expecting that gift to become a God. And so many of the fights and quarrels that have happened, for instance, in a marriage or siblings or so forth, is an expectation of something or someone doing the heavy lifting, the emotional, the psychological, the spiritual heavy lifting that only God can do. I, I begin to disdain, I, I begin to despise those things which I worship that fail to deliver what I'm demanding they deliver. And so one of the broadest explanations for all of the poison in our politics is simply that we are trying to make government be more than God ever intended for it to be. That one of the basic problems related to all of the dysfunction we see is that we have taken a tool, a gift from God, and asked it to do more than it was ever designed to do. And so we're asking, answering this question, where did all this poison come from? Where's all this dysfunction coming from? And the quick answer on the front end of the sermon is, we are prayerless, and we are, as a culture, as a people, asking this gift God created called government to do more than it was ever designed to do. And whenever you ask, and this is something we all struggle with in our lives, whenever you ask something to do more than what it was supposed to do, more than what God designed it to do, 
you will encounter frustrations and coveting and quarreling. So let's establish all that I just said now more deeply in the scriptures. Let's first turn, if you would, to Romans 12 and see that government is indeed a gift from God. Romans 12, 1 through 4 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. For those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now we will return to this verse a little later on in the sermon, but for now I just want you to observe this idea that government is indeed instituted by God, that's verse 1, and verse 4, that it is intended to be God's servant. And so what we're establishing on the baseline right now is that government is a gift from God. Now, to understand what kind of gift it is, we need to go all the way back to the fall. And we need to deal with some first principles ideas. So let's do that mentally. Let's jump in our time machine and, and land right after Adam and Eve committed the sin against God and were naked and ashamed. And what we'll find as we're sitting in our little time machine, we somehow got past the angels with the swords, okay? You know the story. Uh, we're in the garden again. We're watching this misery begin to unpackage itself. It's sort of like a, a virus that's just beginning to contaminate the entire creation in some sense. We see that there's all of this fallout from the fall. And really what we're going to find as we unpack this further is that government is one of God's gifts to ameliorate the consequences of the fall. The pain of the fall, I think, would be the way to say that. And the word ameliorate just means to make something less bad. This is an incredible thing we see in the character of God. And I really hope you take this home today for whatever you're going through personally, because we're dealing with something that's kind of, you know, abstract and ideological. But personally, take this comfort home with you. When you screw up, God doesn't abandon you. He, he joined Adam and Eve in the consequences of the fall, ultimately all the way to the cross, which we'll discuss in a moment. But one of the beautiful things we see amongst all of the misery produced by sin is that God is going to help them deal with the fallout from the fall. So look at this list. I've got a list here of just one way of describing all of the terrible consequences that have arisen from the fall. You've got physiological consequences, death, decay, and sickness. You've got psychological consequences, I guess you could say that. Shame, guilt, fear, whatever you would call that, maybe just emotional. You've got sociological consequences, blame shifting and hiding and alienation and separation. You've got ecological consequences, the ground is cursed, thorns and thistles. You've got spiritual consequences, hiding from God, enmity with God, the seed of the woman doing battle with the seed of the serpent. You've got 
epistemological consequences, distorted thinking, spiritual blindness. And then we're still in chapter three, more or less. And then we move into chapter four and we see we have got crime also. Murder. The first civil crime was a biggie. The act of homicide, fratricide to be specific. And what we need to see about God in these crucial moments following man's sin is that God did not abandon humanity to suffer these consequences without any mitigation or relief. We don't have that kind of God. If, if God has chosen to place his love on you and affirm you as his, we, you, do not, you do not get abandoned when you abandon God. Uh, as, as Paul says in Timothy, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so how, do, how does God, let's look at how God responds to this avalanche of terrible pain and consequences, epistemological, sociological, psychological, physiological, ecological. How does God respond to this? He begins essentially what I would describe giving mankind tools or gifts, and they are meant to mitigate or ameliorate some of the consequences of the fall. They don't remove them entirely. These are not perfect fixes, but they are a fatherly kindness that seeks to somewhat soften the blow while continuing to use the general pain incurred through sin to allow these people to repent, to allow all people to repent, so forth. So if, if you've ever had a child who's really screwed up, some, there's, this, there's this art to, I want to soften this somewhat. I also don't want to remove the consequences entirely. There's an art to that, and we're all as parents trying to figure that out. But the first place we see that is in the issuance of clothing. There in chapter 3 and verse 7, Adam and Eve are hiding. They're naked and afraid. And God fashions clothing for them out of animal skins. And then the next place we see that, for instance, is in chapter 4, verse 1. Eve, after giving birth to Cain, says what? I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Think about that for a minute. This woman is responsible for a lot of suffering. She has sinned greatly, and yet upon delivering this child, she says, God help me with this. It would not surprise me at all if we were to see in that original scene the felt presence of God, angels or whatever, actually walking with this woman through this first experience of her curse. So, and then you've got the next thing. So we've got clothing and we've got this idea of God helping Eve. And then you've got something emerging in the rest of chapter four, which is some kind of sacrificial system, which I think is fairly clear given the language of the text that God had given to these early people as a way of helping them ameliorate once again, not fix, not solve, not remove, but mitigate some of the consequences of the fall, especially the felt estrangement from God and so on and so forth. And so God has handed Cain and Abel a system of sacrifice that allows them to take the first fruits of what they've produced through their toilsome work and allow those sacrifices to be offered to God. And we know that God's involved in this in a sort of directive way. 
Because when Cain's sacrifice is not accepted, he tells Cain, you know what you're supposed to do. He tells Cain, do what is right. And so God is basically walking with mankind through all of these various consequences that I've listed on the screen. We'll see that list again. And he's helping them ameliorate or mitigate some of the pain of the fall. Now, another thing to observe while we're still there in Eden or near Eden, and that is, is that it's important to note that mankind makes up their own counterfeit tools. And where do we see this? Well, we see that in verse 7 of chapter 3. What did mankind do when they felt naked and ashamed? They hid and they fashioned what? They fashioned their own counterfeit tool to cover their nakedness. They took what was in the garden already and made it into something that they thought could resolve the tension or the pain of their shame. And then in, in chapter 4, we see Cain coming up with what you could describe as a counterfeit sacrifice. Twice. He doesn't offer the sacrifice which is pleasing to the Lord. We don't know the specifics of that, but Cain did because God told him, just do what, do what was right. So he doesn't do that. He counterfeits it. He does something other than what God tells him to do. And then, finally, we see the tragic counterfeit of uh, another tragic counterfeit sacrifice in killing Abel. Essentially, all mankind can do to ameliorate or mitigate the consequences of the fall is to manufacture tools that are counterfeits of what God has to offer. And we do that through the same unbelief that God is in this mess in the first place. So you have right now, I think it'd be good to just think through, like there's three basic concepts we've presented. Number one, the fall has brought many difficult problems into the world. Number two, God has kindly given solutions to mankind to mitigate those problems to some degree. And number three, mankind has developed its own tools to deal with the problem. And these, this development of these tools is just an extension of what got them in the trouble in the first place. Doing what was right in their own eyes, relying solely on their own reason, rejecting God's intervention, rejecting God's word, rejecting God's care, and so on. Okay, now we're ready to talk about government. We see in chapter 4 that Cain has committed the first civil crime that we see. And God's response to Cain's crime is to handle Cain's punishment directly. He dispensed justice to Cain directly. And things moved like this for a long time. But in chapter 6 of Genesis, we see God looking upon humanity and being very angry with what he saw. Verse 5 of Genesis 6 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God destroys the whole earth with a flood and saves one man and his family because, as the text describes, Noah found favor in God's eyes. Now, after the flood is over and Noah is established, sort of a fe the new federal head in some respects of creation, God gives Noah a bunch of tools and these tools are essentially informational. They're almost like algorithms. He's like, here's some things you need to know to, 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 to mitigate the pain and hardship of this world. He's like, you should eat some meat. 
for instance. Just don't eat it with blood in it. And then he says, and if anyone ever kills anybody, I'm going to give some authority to mankind. I'm going to I'm going to hand some of my authority institute institute some of my authority in mankind. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So now we see a new tool bestowed upon humanity and it is the very seed of what we now call government. And that is the tool to avenge crimes against the innocent. This is the seed and the original design of government. You say, well, how do you know that? First of all, all the really smart people think that. So come on. No. Uh, certainly, certainly this is the agreement of, you know, sort of what the, the bulk of who we would consider to be reliable commentators and so on and so forth. But there's another explanation. And it's the reason why I opened with Romans 12. So let's try to hold these two ideas in our head together. We've got in Genesis 9, God saying, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. Essentially giving man the responsibility to avenge. He's, he's instituting authority to avenge murder. Now, look back at Romans 12, verse 3. I'm sorry, Romans 13, verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what we're seeing here is not only that government is a gift from God, but we're also seeing what government was designed to do. One of the many tools God gave humanity to deal with the fall is a delegated system of authority that will punish those who victimize others and also in doing that, you're solving two problems. You're removing the criminal and you're striking terror in the hearts of those who would be criminals. That's what Romans 13 is saying. We had to do all of this background work and get in our time machine and go to Eden to understand government is a gift from God and it is meant to solve one, one of the many consequences of the fall. And I said solved and I shouldn't have. It's meant to mitigate one of the many consequences of the fall. Government is a gift from God meant to handle one particular consequence, to deal harshly with the Cains and would-be Cains and therefore restrain future evil. Now, this is all extremely imperfect, and I'm painting with very broad brushes. I'm trying to get you home to your Sunday afternoon naps and lunches and so forth, and don't, don't come back later and say, that was, that was fairly broad. It's like, well, okay, sit down. If you say this to me, I'm going to sit down. Because I got, I got 10,000 more words that I wrote. Broad brushes here. But we're trying to understand the design of government. We can say this. It is God's design that government do one thing, handle law-breaking. And that even that design is itself imperfect. I was reviewing the laws for execution of capital 
crimes in Deuteronomy 16, I think. And one of the requirements in that text is that anyone who would be executed for murder would only be executed if two or three witnesses saw them do the crime. And then the next requirement is those witnesses have to throw the first stones. That is a really high standard for execution. And what that means, just looking at God's law, what that means is is that many crimes would go unpunished, right? Because not all crimes would occur in the presence of two or three witnesses. Not all the witnesses would be super into throwing rocks. Uh, And there's another problem. Some crimes would, uh, sometimes innocent people would be sentenced to death. Sometimes innocent people will be sentenced to death because it would only take two or three witnesses to agree in order to execute this person. Now, because we have no tolerance in our culture for a God over the imperfect, but have striven instead to create utopian societies where no bad ever happens ever, we look at a system like that with much criticism, and in great sophistry we proclaim Wherever injustice exists anywhere, it's a threat to justice everywhere. It's like, no, it's not true because there's a God over the imperfect tool. And he takes ultimate vengeance. He's ultimately in control. And yes, whatever tool we might use, whatever tool God has given us, will never resolve the terrible consequences of the fall. The best it can do is remove some of the edges, which we don't even deserve. And so this is a tool, it's a gift, it has a limited design, and even that design is meant, is prone to failure. Now, we're basically ready to, in more detail, answer the question we set off at the outset to answer, and that is, Why have our politics become so poisonous? Why is our government so dysfunctional? So now I would like for us to look again at the list of consequences of the fall, if we can. And we can see there are all these terrible consequences of the fall. Physiological, psychological, sociological, ecological, spiritual, epistemological, and criminal. Why is our government so dysfunctional, and why are our politics so poisonous? Because the government's dysfunction stems from it attempting to exceed its design. There are all these terrible things that have happened to us as a consequence of sin, and mankind is psychologically disturbed now, and they're spiritually broken, and they're physiologically haunted by the fear of death and they're sociologically bent on, turned on one another, and there's ecological consequences, and I've just really named only a few. And the temptation, not just with government, but the temptation common to man is to counterfeit by what God has already created some tool to deal with all of it. And the reason why the government and the political discussion has become so poisonous is because it has exceeded its design. It's attempting to do things it was not created by God to do. Have you ever attempted to do something you were not created by God to do? Do you think that God created me to run marathons? 
What do you think? Do you think that watching, do you think there would be some frustration involved with me attempting to transform this, this frame into that of a marathon runner? Have, have you ever seen a home in which the wife is stepping outside of her creational design or man is stepping outside of his creational design? Have you ever seen a man try to be a woman or a woman try to be a man? Like, you can't do it, but you can, you can really, like, load up the hormones and make it a good go. And the result is just frustration. The, re- the result is a kind of dysfunction. It's just, it's exacerbating. And so this is the answer to why, one of the main answers, I guess I should say, to why we see so much dis- dis- dysfunctionality in our government. Imagine this with me. Imagine trying to build a house with only a hammer. There's a saying, when you have a new hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I want you to try to imagine with me, you've got a good hammer. I've got this big old, they call it the California framing hammer, you know. It's, it's huge, and it's a beautiful hammer, and it's, it's, it's the best, one of the best hammers you can get. And, and I could probably go out to a tree and beat this tree whacking and whacking and whacking until this tree fell down just from the hammer. And then I could stand over this tree and I could whack it a bunch more until things resembling boards fell off of it. And then I could, I could take those boards to the site where I was going to build the house. I don't know how I would make a foundation with a hammer, but uh, let's forget about that. And then I could look at the lengths of the boards that I needed, and I could go to the length of that where that board, and I could just whack it until it breaks, and I could kind of get this jagged, fractured thing. And then I get to this point, though, right? It's like I need to connect them together. So now I've got to go back over to the wood pile and make little wooden nails, and then I've got to use my hammer to get these little holes and make these tenons and mortises and so on and so forth. Could I build a house with only a hammer? No. And the process of attempting to do so would be profound frustration. This is one of Paul's basic messages to the people in the New Testament, and that is, you are not going to get to godliness using the tool of the law. You use the wrong tool, and that's basically what was wrong with the Jews and all the oppression we see in the book of Acts is they had a hammer and they thought everything was a nail, including Paul, who they whacked a fair amount. But think of all the inefficiency. Think of all the frustration when you're attempting to use one tool to do the job of many tools. And so now we can say, just unilaterally, whether this is popular or not, that the government has appointed itself to be the instrument to mitigate all of the consequences of the fall. And the frustration, dysfunction we see ensuing should not surprise us. This is, we do this in our own lives, guys. And in the meantime, They've done a pretty miserable job, to be honest, of staying true to its one true thing. And we all know this as well. When we try to do everything 
we fail to do the one thing God has called us to do with the diligence that we ought. This is essentially one very firm biblical answer to the question. And I give it to you today, not to preach to the choir, but to arm you capacity to have conversations about politics that actually go somewhere, namely, that go to God. God is very, very wise in giving us gifts, because he gives us such good gifts, and they're so, like, they're just so beautiful and good, like marriage is such a good gift, and children are such a good gift, and, and comfort is such a good gift. I mean, God just does this amazing thing. He gives us these incredible gifts. Beer is a good gift. But here's what he does. He gives us these gifts to say, hey, I am a good God. But he also gives us these gifts so that we see that that thing can't be God. Because there's this incredible thing that happens with every gift. We see it as this hammer and everything becomes a nail. And it's like, oh my goodness, look at this wonderful gift. And then it begins to dawn on us with God's grace it begins to dawn on us. This thing has extreme limitations. This thing called marriage has extreme limitations. This thing called money has extreme limitations. This thing I was hoping for, I got it. It's beautiful, but boy, it didn't solve the things I thought it would solve. God's so wise in giving us gifts because they point to him in two ways. They point to him in the fact that, well, this is a good gift and it came from a good God. And it also points to him because when we use this gift, we realize, oh, this is just not the same as God. I heard a stand-up comic make a very clever observation about cauliflower. He said that for thousands of years, cauliflower was just a second-tier vegetable. Broccoli's less offensive cousin. Then all of a sudden, someone tapped cauliflower on its rounded shoulders and said, hey, cauliflower, we're going to need you to be rice and mashed potatoes and pizza crust. And in my opinion, cauliflower has risen to the occasion. But this is what we do with God's gifts. We ask them to be more than what they were designed to be. We want romance to be more than it can be and sex to be more than it can be and food to be more than it can be and even our physical health to be more than it can be. We want our emotions to be more than they can be. And so this isn't only a lesson in politics. This is a lesson in all of life. Why are there fights and quarrels amongst us, either horizontally or even vertically with God? It has to do with this problem of desires and their expansion beyond their original created design. And we know this. We know we can make our careers or even our children or our possessions to be our identity. And all of this nonsense leads to all kinds of dysfunction in our life. So it should not surprise us whatsoever when we, answer, when we seek to answer the question, where did all this political dysfunction come to find the exact same answer that we find in every other area of our life? We have stepped outside of the design of God. Now look back at Romans 13 with me. Verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. When the government does this, and this only, it is wholly commendable, and not because it will do it perfectly, but because it is simply doing what it was designed to do. And when the government goes beyond this, like all other things, when it steps outside of God's original design, it becomes a rather terrible force. How did we know that communism was doomed from the beginning? All the red flags. I know I saw in some of your eyes before that beautiful dad joke. I know, I think I saw in some of your eyes a sort of yearning for, boy, wouldn't that be nice if the government did what it was designed to do? But can I suggest that you do a little plank inspection right now in your own life? Again, the list, psychological pain, physiological pain, sociological pain, ecological pain, spiritual pain, epistemological pain, criminal pain. Can you think of any other tool or gift that God has created that would do a better job handling most of the things on that list? Point three, impotence among God's other institutions. Impotence among God's other institutions. We look at the government and say, oh my goodness, if only it would do what it was designed to do and nothing more. And I say, exactly, dads. Exactly, church. Theologians identify three institutions created by God to manage life on earth, the church, the family, and the government. And we have seen that the role of government is extremely limited, or at least it ought to be, by God's design. And whenever we try to make a tool or gift from God more than it should be, we run into all kinds of trouble. But there's a flip side to that truth, and that is whenever we fail to be what we should be, whenever we fail to live up to our design, there's a lot of trouble on that side as well. On the one hand, we can say that fights and quarrels emerge when a gift becomes a God. But on the other hand, we might say, maybe we ought to, Consider, are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Because the truth is, Christian, between you and the government, you and your family and your church have far more responsibility to ameliorate and mitigate the things on that list than the government ever could or should. You, dear Christian, were designed to make disciples. You were saved by God through grace, not of works, so that you could walk in the good works which God prepared in advance. And those good works include bringing the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to bear in the world. And guess what? The gospel governs the heart in a way the government simply can't. And so you look at this list of all of the terrible consequences of the fall, and the truth is simply this. 
God gave us two other institutions to deal with many of the things on this list, and they are the family and the church. And together, when we walk as families in the church, walking out into the world with the gospel, we see man's fear of death come under control. We, we see his sin come under control. We see all of his emotional things begin to be reined in. We see the sociological harmony occur. The gospel is the governing force that we have longed for for thousands and thousands of years. The government is over applying itself to these problems. I am under applying myself to these problems. Anyone join me in acknowledging that? So now we're in this classic Matthew 7 situation where we've been looking and rejoicing in this idea this, oh my goodness, government, just just do what you're designed to do and nothing else. Right back at you, brother. What is going on in your life and in my life that is causing us to neglect our basic design to go out into the world and bring the one governing force capable of handling so many of the things on that list? Not perfectly, but well. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to death and shame and guilt and spiritual blindness and problems and epistemological problems. And one of the most beautiful conclusions we reach today is is that when we screw up, God follows us into the curse. And that truth terminates itself in the beautiful moment when we see God himself stepping into this world, taking on flesh, and walking in this fallen world to address the fall from the inside out. By all means, we should, we should, Talk about politics from the pulpit. We should stop being, tell the government to stop being so foolish. We should demand that they stop trying to use their hammer to build a better world. Nobody believes, by the way, that politics should never mix with the pulpit. It often is said. It's never true. The eternal shame of the German church in the 1920s is that it did not speak up nor would its congregants allow for it to speak up to the rise of Nazism in Germany. The great shame of the American church in the 1800s South was not that it talked too much about politics, but it did not talk enough about politics. Nobody believes, no reasonable person believes that politics in the pulpit should not mix. Some people believe they are wiser than their pastors to know when that ought to occur. Okay. But nobody believes it should not occur. So we ought to tell the government to get in its lane, and we ought to tell the government to do its design thing. But guess what? Do you expect much to come from that? Or do we expect more to come from us hearing God's word and accepting the mantle of responsibility we've received in our design as new believers in Christ. Let me just make this really simple. There's this beautiful illustration of all this in Romans 13. For after describing the responsibilities and limitations of government in Romans 13, 
1 through 7, Paul turns to the church and says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbors as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And you'll find in verses 8 through 10, more solutions and mitigations to the fallout of the fall than you will in verses 1 through 7. To think about our list of post-fall consequences and how much pain would be ameliorated if the gospel were sincerely, earnestly, urgently brought to bear. And in this way, answering the problem, answering the question, in this way, we have much to say to a world hamstrung in political poison. We can point to the wisdom of God in his creational design in every area of life and say whenever this wisdom is violated, no matter how well-intentioned, we wind up with a mess. And each one of us has a testimony that we could apply, insert testimony here for when you did that with sex or money or whatever. So you could turn to the world and say, you know, whenever we defy God's creational design, we get into these really dysfunctional situations. Here's my personal story of that. But the beautiful thing is God never leaves us alone like we kind of deserve to be left alone. He is willing even now to give us an opportunity out. But it starts by undoing the initial problem of the fall, which was we didn't listen to him. So the way out is to listen to him. And it's like, well, okay, what is God saying? And you can say, well, God says a lot of stuff. It was very conversational. But here's where I would start. God said this one thing this one time. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's where I would start. We should start by listening to Jesus. We should start by putting our faith in him as the ultimate solution to all of this. And we should start with real heart sincerity, rejoicing in what the prophet Isaiah wrote so long ago, again, and more government dysfunction. For unto us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. And then we are given this promise. The zeal of the Lord will do this. So Christian, today, as we pivot to celebrating this token of the great gospel which we've received, I want to commend you from the psalm I read to open the service. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's be rejoicers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which does so much to ameliorate and will ultimately undo the fall. Let me pray.